This morning, our passage is 1 Peter 3, 17 through 22. I'll read it momentarily. Let me introduce what we're going to be covering. This is a very difficult passage. And over the centuries of church history, there's been theories about what it means. It's so difficult that Luther said that he can't figure out what it means. Pretty well gave up on it. But more currently, because of a better, some of the better scholarship, some of the better discoveries as far as the views of people in Asia Minor and so on, I think it's starting to all add up. And so we're going to really get in depth. It may take a few weeks. The next two weeks after this one, Eric will be teaching Sunday school, but I'll come back to this. There's no way we can do it in an hour. In fact, verse 18 would be worthy of an hour because it's all gospel. So Eric and I have gone over this a few different times here. And so I'll start by reading the text. I'll read it from the New American Standard. I use different translations, but the reason for that is I started from the Greek. I, I did everything in the Greek and then chose whichever English translation on a particular verse best expressed the meaning of the Greek. That's my reason for doing it. I did not choose different translations because some of them said you would find your purpose. (laughs) If you know what I'm talking about. Okay, here, I'll read the text and then pray. For it is better, in verse 17 it says, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, I'll pay a good attention to this whole section. I included verse 17 when I read it because it ties in a theme within Peter itself, which was suffering. And ties our suffering to that of Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our blessed privilege to gather together under the means of grace, to open the scriptures, to understand your word, and to encourage one another. Help us understand what you have said through your authoritative, spirit-inspired apostle. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so that's what we're going to cover 
I have a ton of material. I did unbelievable amount of study and research on this. I hope we can glean from it. And I'm glad Eric is here. There's a mic, and uh, Brian will bring it around as people have questions and discussion. Verse 17 says it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then the reason I cite this verse is the next one, you want to know why there's an also there. And in verse 18, there's textual variance. A number of manuscripts have Christ suffered for sins. Others have Christ died for sins. The same thing happened. He died for sins, but he suffered. And so given the theme in Peter and given what Eric preached last week, which, by the way, thank you, Eric, that was fantastic. Our suffering and Christ's suffering, there's a unity there. And so suffering is something that we share with Christ, only his is redemptive. But we uh, share in that because we are the Lord's and we don't fit into this world. And we'll see that, well, I don't know if I'll get to go into 1 Peter 4 because I want to get back to other means of grace. But 1 Peter 4 picks that right back up again. And it was earlier in Peter's wealth. Suffering is a major theme. So let's go to verse 18. Here's where we're going to find a very rich mother load of theological truth about the gospel. This passage is amazing. So much so that I just was excited. I was studying this. Eric and I talked about it yesterday for quite a long time. It's amazing what's in this. And Frankly, I don't know how anybody can have a Bible and end up not believing it. It's the most absurd thing. These atheists who, uh, they know the Bible better than a lot of Christians, but they don't believe it. Well, they just have hardened hearts. It's, it's amazing. So let me quote it from the NIV. I rarely use the NIV. But there was an issue with, from the Greek with a couple datives that could be used a couple different ways, and it seemed like the NIV brought it, brought it out the way I kind of settled on after all my study from the Greek. So let me read the NIV of 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Now, the number of theological themes in this one verse is significant. Not only are these themes significant, they're repeated, especially if you understand the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. These themes are repeated themes that are very important that we need to understand. Twice here, it says Christ died for sins, and then it really makes substitution clear when it says the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust. For is who pair, and the substitutionary atonement, which we preach and teach, which used to be believed by most conservative Orthodox 
I mean, I don't, Orthodox, not meaning Greek Orthodox, but just those who would stay between the, the lines. Substitutionary atonement was a given. Penal substitutionary atonement was a given. Not today. The theologians are falling all over each other trying to find some way to get away from this, especially the emergent and postmodern type. And they mock the substitutionary atonement. They call it cosmic child abuse. And they, uh, they can't stand the idea that God would have his own son crucified for somebody else's salvation. They don't like it. But the other thing, of course, is they don't really believe the Bible, so don't get too upset. Here's what I know. I'm going to take what it does say, preach it to the Lord's flock, and then when I get a chance, correct the emergence. But I'm not going to let them constrain what I preach because they don't have a right to. And this is what the passage says. So substitution means Christ died on our behalf. We were the wicked, the rebellious, the sinful ones, and Christ died for us. So here we have a substitute. Any questions about, comments about that? All right. Once for all, let's unpack that a little bit. Hopox. If you read a commentary and it's, says that this is this passage or this particular Greek word was only used once in the New Testament. It'll call it a hapax legomena. Uh, did somebody have a question? No, I didn't. I thought, thought I saw it. Yeah, okay. We just wanted to get you up. Well, you know, if he nods off altogether, we're going to move him to the rocking chair over here. We set, that, we set it up just in case somebody really needs it. Yeah, we don't want somebody falling out of their chair onto the floor, so we got one with kind of hold them there. Hopox, cool word. Very important theologically. Why? Well, if you uh, let me go through, in fact, I'll have some people look up verses that want to. You have to volunteer. I'm not going to call on somebody and embarrass them. Who would like to read Hebrews 7.27? Okay, Mike Kaufman, 727. Do you want to do one too, Robin? Okay, uh, Hebrews 912. Anybody else? Diane? Hebrews 1010. These verses all have hopox once for all. <laughs> Somebody took the rocking chair. <laughs> Yeah, there's a special mem- menu at Perkins for you, Steve. Yeah. Okay, Hebrews seven twenty seven. Yeah, and this is the Holman's uh, Christian Study Standard Bible. He does not need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. Up to God. Yeah, here it says, offered up himself. Fantastic verse. Hebrews 7.27, we could preach on that all day. Think about it. They had the high priest who had to keep doing the priestly service over and over, and then every year they had to have 
for Robin there. Every year they had to have the Day of Atonement and they had to scapegoats and it never got resolved. Very important theme in Hebrews. But Jesus Christ, the sinless one, does not have to offer up for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. And he did this once for all. Hopox. Notice Hebrews 7.27. Put that in your something, memory list. or It's already in your Bible. You can't put it in there. You might want to mark it. Because there's the gospel. There's the theme of Hebrews. So it's once for all. You don't need, for example, what if you're a Roman Catholic? Do you really need the Mass? No, not according to this passage. All the offerings that ever need to be done were done once for all by Christ. It's decisive. Hopox means once and never again. People say, well, where's, where's the Scripture alone in the Bible? Oh, he's going to Jude. The faith was delivered or handed out to the saints once for all. Once and never again. And so he's offered for sins and it's one time. Okay, Robin, Hebrews 9.12. This is the NIV. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Hallelujah. He entered once for all, by, not by bulls and goats, but by his own blood. And the result was he obtained for us eternal redemption. Do you see why we often cite 1 Peter 3.18 when we're preaching the gospel here at Gospel of Grace? It's loaded. It's powerful. It'll keep you out of false religion if you believe it right there once for all puts an end to most of what's going on in religiosity religious prescriptions that you do over and over and over and over again and it never gets settled but according to this it's already settled once for all hebrews 10 10 diane i'm reading from the holman christian standard By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. Imagine the good news that would be if you ever study what all they had to do in Judaism to be clean, just in Leviticus. Can you imagine the good news that once for all is? That's it. It's done. God did it. God gave the results of what he did to us as a gift. And he died for sins. He obtained eternal redemption. He obtained sanctification, which it says in Hebrews 10, 10. And so we have here, I have another verse. Somebody, Peter, do you want to read one? I like your attitude. <laughs> Romans 6.10. I want to show you this as a theme in the New Testament. It's so fabulous. Romans 6.10. You know what surprised me is this just doesn't get more attention by preachers and theologians. 
because it's uh, central. Yeah, Romans 6.10. Go ahead. Okay, Romans 6.10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. All right, so there we have substitution and once for all. He, he died for sins. It was done once for all. That's the end. That's everything. It's all provided. I'm going to read to you in regard to substitution, Isaiah 53.11. Isaiah 53.11. As the result, or as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. That phrase, the many, is found in the New Testament quite a few times. It's very important. It's found in Romans 5, for example. So we have justification. We have sanctification. And once for all, and then we have some uh, a reason, one reason for this, and it's to bring you to God. Okay? Now, here's where I had some fun with the Greek and Logos Bible software. I have it highlighted in red on the PowerPoint to bring you to God. There's a simple word in the Greek, ago, which means to bring or carry. This usage here has... The prefix pros or toward, and it's prosago. And I did a search on that. I, I did some research on it. I have the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which has a good entry on it. And this word that's translated to bring you to God is used in the Old Testament Septuagint as a technical term that had to do with the priest being duly cleansed and suitable to go before God. And the astounding, now we may not you know, immediately grasp all these implications, but I want to preach them and teach them to you because they're so profound. And if you were a first century Jew, this would be absolutely liberating Either that or it would be infuriating because it would mean they don't need the temple services anymore. Prasago is used in the Septuagint of Exodus 29.4. For the sake of time, I'll just read it to you, but mark down Exodus 29.4. It's used other places in the same kind of context. And it bring, okay, Exodus 29.4, then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So in the theological dictionary of the New Testament that describes this, pros, here it is, prosago, just a little clue for you that are new to reading technical theology. You'll see a phrase, this says cultic cleansing. It doesn't mean cult in the sense that we think of Jehovah Witnesses. Cultic or cultus in theological jargon means 
a specified religious group and its practices. Okay, so that's used of Israel as well. So as far as their um, cultic cleansing, this was specified by Yahweh as how the priest would be cleansed ceremonially according to the ordination of God through Moses so that he was fit to go in and do his service. So what it um, connotes is being chosen, in this case the Levitical priesthood, being cleansed so that you can go before God uh, and thereby uh, do your religious duties in the Old Testament. For us, it means we're all cleansed by faith once for all, and that we can all come before God, and we don't need some higher order priestly type to stand between us and God. Okay, so Christ is the high priest. He went in to the true sanctuary with his own blood, and he did this once for all. He did this the righteous for the unrighteous substitution, and he did this to, now here's the point of doing this, bring us believers to God in a way that only Aaron and sons could go, and then they had to do it right or they would die. We can come before God as the priesthood of every believer, and that's thematic in Peter, so I'm not departing one bit from the context here, one Peter 2.5. It says there, and you want to jot this down in your notes, 1 Peter 2.5, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Notice what it says, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So just as Aaron had to go through the specified cleansing in Exodus 29.4, in order to go before God acceptably, we as believers, because of what Christ did once for all, are brought before God, and we can offer up acceptable sacrifice. We don't need a priest. In fact, if anybody claims to be a priest, they're a wicked rebel against God and they should repent. We were doing radio the other day, last week, and I used a term, and then I was glad I wasn't live because I wasn't even sure it was a real term. <laughs> Eric hadn't heard it, so then I started doubting myself. The term I used was hierophant. Anybody else heard that term? Good. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, there's two terms actually. One of them you hear in political debate, sycophant, and that would mean like a lap dog that'll bl- blindly follow who it, certain people just because that's what they do. Sycophant would be the follower. Hierophant would be just exactly what I said. Somebody ordained as a priestly class to stand between somebody else and God. I thought I'd heard that in seminary. I looked it up to find out it really was a word. 
So I didn't delete it from the radio show. Well, if you look at 1 Peter 2, just the chapter before this, and you look at the cross-references, and you look at the holy priesthood, and then you know that this prosego was a technical term for being brought before God. Wow! <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, do you want to bring, turn the mic on and give it to Eric? When I mention this, realize Bob and I don't contrive our messages together. Um, I'm going to be giving a message today in the sermon where you have a blind man, Bartimaeus. He normally would be excluded from entering in the temple because mm-hmm. he was blind. In Leviticus 21, the Aaronic priesthood was not permitted to go into the temple if the men were blind or lame. Well, what we have is Jesus heals the man, enabling him to go into the temple in his triumphal entry. Well, what's that really a symbol of? Exactly what Bob is teaching us here. We've been brought to God in the new covenant. We have a priesthood of every believer. And so you're going to have a little inside scoop then into the sermon today, and it's exactly what Bob is teaching today. It's amazing how these things always tie together. So... Thank yeah, you. I mean, absolutely. I, I so love the Bible. I so love the text itself. The more I listen to sermons and, I go, and I've you know, been accessed to some services here and there, the thing I notice, even in evangelicalism, is the text disappears. It hardly ever gets put right out there for anybody. Just sort of ideas quasi-derive from the text. Let's just start thinking about means of grace again. This, the text, what it says, what it implies, how it applies, is in itself a means of grace. And for us to be confronted with this and reminded of this and thinking about this is so powerful that God will use it to change us. And if we sit under the truth of the text, a year or two years, three years, we look back, we're different than we were. We think differently. And it isn't because of a clever preacher, it's because of the text. And uh, there's nothing better to get excited about than the text. But when the text goes off somewhere and you never see it, so we're going to use PowerPoint for music, we're also going to use it, put the text out there. Let me read... A summary in this Theological Dictionary article says, At any rate, a Christian reading 1 Peter 3.18 and at home in the sacrificial terminology of the Old Testament is reminded by the parallel mode of expression of the approach of the cleansed priest to God for Christians themselves are called to be a holy priesthood in 1 Peter. So, as Eric was saying, the astounding thing was that even the blind and lame could approach God, which wouldn't have been allowed under the Old Covenant. I don't care how pathetic I and you might be, God is bringing us to himself through Messiah. We might be blind, lame, bad situations, nobody that anybody would ever expect God could possibly use, and we're a holy priesthood. The truth of it is profound. When I began a few weeks ago studying 1 Peter 3.18, just to get to verse 19, which is controversial, 
I thought, man, I'll, half of this verse is two or three sermons. If you wanted to, you know, really expound all the cross references, we're just hitting the highlights. You know, the substitutionary atonement, the once for all, the being brought to God, which is a theme in Hebrews. And then it's not done there. Now we go to Christ. It's about Christ. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, the translation issue that I was alluding to is in the Greek, there are two dativs in the body, that's dadia, by the spirit, dadia. So do you, dadia could mean in, by, in the sphere of, or agency. It leaves a little bit of ambiguity to be determined by the context. So I read Thomas Schreiner, who, by the way, Thomas Schreiner's commentary on 1 Peter, if you're someone who likes to buy commentaries, I highly recommend Thomas Schreiner on 1 Peter and to Peter and uh, Jude, and it's in the New American Commentary series. And then to add blessing upon blessing, I found out that uh, Dr. Davids, who wrote the commentary for the New International Commentary series, is just as good. Riches, a mother load of riches in one Peter. Who could ask for more? You don't need to go to Alaska and Try to get that gold out of the ground. You can find gold right here. Outstanding material. Now, the question is, it's not necessary that these two have to be the, the exact same thing as far as the data. And I chose the NIV after looking through all of the options. And then uh, Eric and I talked about it. And and the context of Peter, which is always the most important thing, I believe it means he was put to death in the body, in the flesh, as a human being who really had a real human body, who really shed real blood, and who died for sins once for all, made alive by the Spirit. Now, we have other passages in the New Testament that tell us that the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead... So we know this is a theological truth in the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit was at least part of the agency whereby Messiah was raised from the dead. Let me make a statement about the ver- this verse and the ones that follow. Okay? What follows is predicated by the idea of the re- bodily resurrection. This whole section that I read at the very beginning of this teaching is not about what Jesus did between his death and resurrection. It's not about some journey to Tartarus. It's not about going and giving dead saints a second chance to repent after death, as some have thought. No, that's not that. This is about what happens after resurrection. There's a... a, the inclusio here. We have the resurrection, bodily resurrection of verse 18. And then we have in verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it's reiterated in different terms, citing Psalm 110, or at least alluding to it. 
1 Peter 3.22, who is at the right hand of God. This is about what happens after resurrection. In his death, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't die to go to hell. He had died to ascend to God. And so, let's talk, before we go any further, made alive by the Spirit, made alive there means resurrection. It's used the same way elsewhere in the New Testament. I'm willing to start, <laughs> I mean, if anybody wants to start discussing at this point, we will, otherwise I'll go to the next verse, which is the one that really engenders all the controversy. All right? So, uh, as I said, Eric and I have gone over this together and believe that this means resurrection. All right, now let's go to verse 17, or 19, excuse me. Here's where we get the questions, all right? So what I've established, if you're willing to follow this, through whom would be the... Holy Spirit says here in 1 Peter 3.19, still in the NIV, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Lots of questions. But let's at least get some of the basics settled in our minds so we can cut down on the number of variables. Through whom, I believe, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Made alive by the Spirit, Through whom? Who? The Holy Spirit. Also, he went. He is Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord. This is after the resurrection. If you have a theory about descending into hell between death and resurrection, you're not going to get any comfort for that theory here. Would you repeat what you just said? Yeah, give the mic to Eric. I'll repeat it and let him. He can correct me if he needs to. I was just going to point out, those who hold to the view that this is referring to Jesus' descent down into the world of Hades, notice the verb there, he went. The same verb is used for the ascension of Christ. And that's why that's a really good translation of as the went. Yeah, traveled is another word that's used. Exactly. You have a whole theological system yeah, so here we have he traveled, is one way to literally translate it, and as we see later in this section, where does he travel ultimately to? The right hand of God. And that ties it together with what we looked at earlier in Hebrews, where Jesus Christ is at the, having obtained eternal redemption, having shed his blood once for all, having entered the holy place once for all, ascended to the right hand of God. It's repeated here in Peter. So this isn't about a descent into hell. It's about an ascent into heaven. Um, Jim Palmer has... Something. When Jesus was on the cross and he told the thief on the cross today, thou shalt be with me in paradise, where was paradise located? 
a lot of people believe paradise in Luke 16, 19 through 31 was where the righteous souls went when they died prior to Jesus dying on the cross. Okay. Uh, that's what, uh, actually, I'm going to read theories about this. One, one theory that has been explained in church history was kind of what you're saying, that there were people still in this Abraham's bosom and that Messiah went there and let everybody out and brought them to heaven. But the problem is it totally ignores the context because the issue is going to be Noah and what happened in Noah's day. Furthermore, in my research, I looked at this term spirits. Notice this here, spirits in prison. That word is rarely used for human beings. It is in Hebrews where it talks about the spirits of just men made perfect, but there is qualified so we know who they're talking about. When it's unqualified, spirits means either angels of one sort, either good ones or evil ones, angels, demons, whatever. Furthermore, in the next verse, if I remember right, it talks about eight souls. So Peter is using spirits for one type of being and souls for another. And Peter is referring to spirits as either good or bad fallen angels or good angels, they wouldn't be fallen, and souls to refer to human beings. So if Jesus went to preach to souls or he went to Abraham's bosom to bring people to heaven, that's more speculative than it is anything that this text is talking about. And it fully ignores the context of the Noahic flood and what went on there. All right, so as we go forward, I think the meaning is clearer than we would have ever thought it was. It's just that a lot of people don't like it. And I won't reject an interpretation just because some people don't like it. Eric was telling a story about somebody saying, whatever it means, it can't mean that. (laughs) We'd rather know nothing than to believe something we don't like. It really doesn't matter what somebody likes. I've, I've had that response, I don't know how many times, to a debate or to biblical exposition. Here's what the scripture says. I don't like that. Well, that's just a statement about yourself. Is it not? What does it say and why is just what I want to know. I don't care what somebody doesn't like. Okay, that, that, you know where that gets you is in the theological liberalism. When I was a kid in a liberal church, all theology was determined by the um, emotional sensibilities of the liberal preacher. If hell bothered the liberal preacher, then it no longer exists. If the gospel about people needing to repent bothered the liberal preacher, then we have no gospel. If communism appealed to the liberal preacher, then the missionaries that we support 
were communists or socialists, and we'd send them out to make the world a better place. I kid you not. That's what I grew up listening to from the pulpit. Can't believe anything that bothers us. Is that appropriate? Or must we allow the text to preach preach to us and speak to us? That's what means that grace is about. What does the text say? Perhaps if we repent and believe the gospel, we'll have an entirely different emotional response to this. My response is, thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing all this and providing salvation. I like that. I appreciate that. Yes, to Paul, and then Brian, you can make a comment too. I don't often make statements because, but this is um, this is one where that passes all understanding for sure. And I do appreciate all that you and Eric have done. But to me, this one, and it's only one small piece, but anyway, this is very evangelical to me. That yes, the resurrected Lord, uh, who whom I we all directly identify and, and has remade us, would send us then as a resurrected Lord to preach to those who are in the spirits, you know, in hell. Yeah, it, well, there, it's, uh, it's an evangelical sort of thing to me. Um, yeah, this particular passage, I'll give you a little preview, is about the fallen angels in Genesis 6 who were imprisoned for their wickedness. And this is a parallel passage with Jude 1 and verse 6 and 2 Peter 2 and um, several verses in there. There's a big run-on sentence. And I'm going to go into all of that. But the Bible marks out the particular wicked spirits from Genesis 6 as imprisoned for special punishment. And the preaching was not salvific preaching, but proclamation of Christ's victory and judgment on their wickedness. It's really very much parallel to the book of Ephesians in many ways, the principality's power. Is there any evidence for that in the context? Well, if you look at um, verse 22 of 1 Peter 3, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So the topic includes angels, authorities, power. Asia Minor is about angels, authorities, and powers that the people feared. Ephesians is about that. Colossians is about that. They had a worldview that maybe is not our worldview, but yet it was a biblical one. And so, and then in Revelation, these locked up spirits... You might say, well, how can you lock a spirit in prison? Well, what happens in Revelation? A thousand years we have a spirit locked up. All right. Uh, Brian, you had something. Then back to Eric again. I was just going to say I'm confused, so I'll let Eric talk. (laughs) (laughs) Confused? (laughs) Again? (laughs) All right. Go ahead, Eric. I think it's really important, Bob, that you pointed out there that the term preached... Um, and check me if I'm wrong. I don't have my Greek text, but was it Caruso? It's not. It's one... uh, a, a different form of that that's actually used for proclamation. The point is, um, if if this would in, if this was intended to say that it was preaching the gospel to people, uanglitzo, which means to preach the gospel, would have been mm-hmm. a very natural selection by Peter. 
However, the, the selection here means more of a proclamation. So get out of your mind the idea necessarily that it's gospel preaching. If you think more that it was through whom also he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that's more in the thinking you want to have in your mind because the proclamation wasn't a good one. It was a proclamation of judgment, just as Bob is alluding to. Yeah, and the yeah. word is uh, A.K. Rudzin, and it means announced, and it can be used either as Christian preaching or as simply um, in a more ordinary means of announcing anything. Okay? And it's used several times that way in the New Testament. So some of the commentators that have helped me the most have, yeah, it's not evangelized, it's announced. Okay, or, or made proclamation, which you'll see in some of the translations. To Mike, please. Okay, I'm in Brian's camp. I'm confused. And so I'm going to, uh, if I could, read just uh, a note in the commentary from my Holman's study Bible okay. here. Okay. Um, it says, The position taken in the text of the HCSB is that Christ, after his death and resurrection, made a proclamation of victory over the demonic spirits. In this view, the spirits are evil angels. They is that, are, anyway, yes. So is, this, is that a true statement? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, and, and, and not only is that a true statement, and I do like the Holman Christian Standard Bible, by the way, it can be even more narrowed down. Not just any wicked, evil spirits, the ones in particular who were locked up because of what happened in Genesis 6. Jim Palmer. So we Very have, good, Mike, by we the really way. have Very what Jesus did when he died, but before he was resurrected. And then this scripture deals with what he did after he was resurrected. Yeah. It's not about what he did between death and resurrection. It's and not now, about what that. did he do bef- after he died before, but before he was resurrected? We know very little. I believe he went to be with God. He went to paradise, according yeah. to what he said, the thief on the cross. Right. But, uh, and, and if he and the priest were going to paradise, it must be where you want to go. It wouldn't be much comfort to the priest if that meant, or to the thief on the cross if it meant hell. I don't know how you feel about Les Feldick, but he preaches that, that um, you know, he went to the paradise side of hell where Abraham and... and yeah, that's the, part, that's the view that Jim was talking about. Yeah. That's incorrect in my opinion. And, and why is that? Because it's about the resurrection. Look at the text itself. Verse 18, uh, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Made alive is a term for resurrection. Look on down here. Um, verse 21, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God through a good conscience, through the resurrection. So you have the resurrection of Christ. This is what he did after the resurrection, not just after his death. That's what the text says. And so that theory has been around in church history. It's usually linked to the idea of a second chance. You die and then you get a chance to repent again. Of course, I don't know that somebody's necessarily saying that. These theories have been around throughout church history. But the first thing we've got to do to eliminate views is to narrow it down to what has to be after the resurrection. 
because of 18 to 21. If it's not after resurrection, it doesn't help us. Yes. Okay. From where did Jesus make the proclamation? You're saying he went to the right hand of God. Was it from there then that he made the proclamation right, to the spirits? Read. Yes, that's a good question, Beth. Um, Here's David's from the New International Commentary. It's interesting. Well, David's lays out five different views that have been said in church history. Schreiner has four. And if you read all of the different views, and Luther said it's, it's not even understandable. Um, if you start eliminating the ones that can't be true, it, you, you limit it. I believe this would have happened on his way to the throne. Okay, and as he ascends above all of the authorities and powers, that's the message of Ephesians. He's seated beyond and above the authorities and powers, and as we're in Christ, we're safe. These wicked spirits have no power over us as Christians. And the ones marked out in Genesis 6 in the time of Noah, which is specifically referenced here, are held for special judgment. Their sin was so wicked, they were literally locked up all the way back in Genesis and kept that way. Those particular spirits. Jude says that. It's implied in Second Peter 2. And I think that's just the view that was prevalent at the time of the biblical authors. When I started to see that for what it actually says in the text... Then it's all started to make sense. Yes, Brian. So the Apostles' Creed that we grew up with in, in the Methodist Church and said, and he descended into hell. When was that written and by whom that <clears throat> they got it so wrong? The Apostles' Creed. Uh, boy, it's very early, third century probably. It's it's not binding and authoritative. Yes, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, to the preposition through whom he also went and preached. Yes. Uh, he went in the spirit. Uh, but for those who would argue that it was an evangelical preaching, would have to presuppose that they could be saved. Yeah, right, which right? is not true. Yeah, which is not true. So it was a proclamation of victory, uh, like the cry on the cross, it is finished. Yeah, it's exactly very good point. And then Floyd, and then also Ephesians says this. I mean, Ephesians really has some of the very same terminology. Uh, I don't think the, anybody's creed that says Jesus went into hell is worthy of believing. I know the word of faith people make a big deal about that, and they get that uh, from the, theosophical society. And they believe that Jesus... I, there's a whole book. Well, who, who's the founder of the Word of Faith movement before Kenneth Hagin? Name is lost to me. No, no, no. This was back in 1930. Hagin plagiarized this guy. No, it's somebody who wrote books. And I have, I used to have, I think my heresy library got pitched. But whatever the case, he has a book written in the 30s, a book this thick. It says, What happened? The whole book is about Jesus in hell. So the word of faith people insist on that. 
that Jesus had to literally go into hell itself as a man. E.W. Kenyon. I can't remember and I can't hear. Other than that, I don't have any signs of old age. E.W. Kenyon is the founder of the Word of Faith movement. Kenneth Hagin plagiarized his material without giving him credit. Paul. I think that uh, proclamation by nature is evangelical. So I agree that this is about proclamation of what he did. And that's why I say this is an evangelical kind of thing. But it's about proclamation. It's about proclamation of vindication of the righteous over the, in, in the context of the judgment of the wicked, including the wicked spirits that were responsible for what happened at the flood. Things got so bad and so, so many boundaries were crossed that God destroyed the entire world with a flood. And you, some people might question God's mercy and justice in that, but he saved the eight. And so this proclamation is a vindication of God's ways. Amen? We preach God's judgment against sin when we preach the gospel, don't we? It's part and parcel. Uh, Eric. Bob, I was going to just give a cross-reference where you're, the same theme is being taught as you mentioned in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.8, uh, notice what Paul us. says. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he's talking about Christ, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, that's a quotation from Psalm 68. And our claim would be that this host of captives were the very same spirits in prison that he is pillaging, as it were. These are the evil spirits. So think about your demonology. You have good angels and you've got bad angels. The bad angels are demons. And then you have two, you have two subcategories of demons. You have demons that didn't go after women in Genesis 6. And then you have demons that did go after women in Genesis 6. And they're locked in this prison. Uh, they're locked up. It's so bad they're locked up so they can't be they can't do it again. wandering around on the earth trying to do anything bad. They're locked up. Exactly. Now, um, this is the biblical worldview. It may bother us. We may not like it. But if you look at Jude 1 and verse 6, it's really saying the same thing. Let me quick read that so you got something to think about till next week. I love all this discussion. This is what Sunday school is supposed to be all about. Oh, where's my Jude? All right. Now, here we go. I got it. Listen to Jude 1 and verse 6 and 7 that shares the same view. All right. Quote, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds. Notice they're locked up. They're not wandering around. They're locked up. Under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then it goes to Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they were in the same way, as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, that's Genesis 6, and are, for, for the angels, now this would be later in the Lot narrative, are exhibited as an example in undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Genesis in the judgments therein are about boundary crossing. In the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, you have 
boundary crossing, strange flesh. And God is merciful. Remember in the theophany as he talks with Abraham, will you spare the city for so many righteous and so many and so many? There weren't enough. And when the angels struck those people blind, they kept groping for the door. Their sin was more important than realizing that God was going to judge them. Crossing boundaries. Genesis 6 is about crossing boundaries. This is wicked. God will not tolerate it. According to Jude, the angels that participated are locked up. In fact, they still are. But Jesus announced, I keep forgetting what I got to do on this notes page. Uh, we ran out of time. Let me give a sort of a summary from this Dr. Davids from New International Commentary of the New Testament. Thus, it seems likely, he says, that this passage in 1 Peter refers to a proclamation of judgment by the resurrected Christ to the imprisoned spirits, that is, the fallen angels, sealing their doom as he triumphed over sin, death, and hell. And specifically, references Jude 6. And, and whatever the case, you can say what you will about this, and I'll, there's other theories. I'll read them to you next week, or in three weeks. Uh, any interpretation that doesn't tie this to the Noadic flood is guilty of ignoring the context. Because Peter goes to Noah. Not only here, but in 2 Peter 2 and in 2 Peter 3. Noah is very important. And you also have then our reference to baptism, which we'll be talking about. The ark and the salvation of the eight souls is a prefiguration of baptism. One more. No. Okay. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing the truth about our salvation and once for all provision for atonement. We confess that this passage is difficult, but it's in the Bible. We want to understand it. You inspired it. Help us and give us wisdom as we dig into the text. And may we find applications that will be enlightening and life-changing for us. In Jesus' name, amen.